You're listening to Music for a While, a podcast brought to you by the West Bend Center for Connection and Creativity Through Music. On this episode, enjoy Brian Finley and Barb Hobart as they discuss and appreciate the music of Haydn. Hi, I'm Brian Finley. Welcome to Music for a While from West Bend. For the past 20 years, West Bend has focused on bringing people together through music. Maybe you visited our summer music festival of concerts at the barn out near Campbellford, Ontario, or maybe you've been involved with some of the growing list of year-round activities and programs at the Clock Tower Cultural Centre in Campbellford. Or maybe this is the first time you've ever even heard the name West Bend. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to West Bend, and thank you for joining us. Music for a While is a new podcast series devoted to exploring the wonderful world of music. What makes it tick? What's behind the scenes? And who are these incredible creators? And who are the performers who continue to bring it all to life? Well, let's get started with who are the experts. Today we are joined by Barb Hobart, one of our very favorite musical color commentators. Hi, Barb. Hi. (laughs) Nice to have you here. When I first uh, proposed this idea of uh, a podcast to you, uh, once you settled down a little bit, which took a little while, which was great, but uh, <laughs> your, I asked you, what, uh, what do you think we should begin with? And you immediately said, hi. So why did you say that? Well, first of all, as you know, these are very challenging times. And it's interesting that Haydn said, he was a servant really in the house of Esterhazy for 30 years. And he said he experienced isolation He was cut off from the rest of society. There was nobody to confuse or to torment him. And that meant that he had to be original. The other reason is because I love the fact, I find his music very joyful. And Duncan Clark, a musicologist that I like, has called Haydn the most humane and comforting of composers. And I really think that we could use that comfort about now. Indeed. And the other reason is because, as someone in their 70s, I find it highly wonderful that Haydn produced some of his best work after he was 65 and well into his 70s. You still have a few more laps there. (laughs) (laughs) I also write like what he wrote though, and this is what he wrote. Often as I struggled with obstacles of every kind opposed to my works, often as my physical and mental powers sank and I had difficulty in keeping to my chosen course, an inner voice whispered to me, There are so few happy and contented men here below. Perhaps your work may someday be a source from which men laden with anxiety and burdened with affairs may derive a few moments of rest and refreshment. Pretty wise words from Joseph Haydn. (laughs) Very wise words. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's dive right into who this uh, this person was. One of the one of the most uh, glorious uh, things, perhaps, to start with is one of his tribute concerts to him uh, later on in his life, uh, a year or so before he, he died at the age of 77. So I think there was a, a big uh, uh, celebration for his 76th birthday uh, that, that quickly turned into one of Europe's greatest musical moments of, of modern Europe. Can you describe this scene for us? Yes, he was brought in, it was uh, um, his creation. And he was brought in on a chair because he was so weak by that point that he really couldn't walk. The hall was... But, but, but being bring, brought in on a chair, what does that really mean? That's well, a, they carried him in. Carried him aloft, and, right? Uh, carried him aloft yeah. and he was sitting, <laughs> yes. Interestingly enough, at that concert was Beethoven, 
and Salieri and Beethoven kissed his hand and talked about the mastery of this man, which is interesting considering that Beethoven had said years before he could learn nothing from him. <laughs> but the creation is such a huge work and Haydn actually wrote to a friend after that about how much this concert had meant to him because it was the honors that were bestowed upon him that gave him sustenance in the later year, in the last year of his life when he really wasn't very well. And the creation is such an amazing work. It originally, well, the, the text was taken from the first three books of Genesis and Milton's Paradise Lost. And it was originally given to Handel and Handel expressed no interest in it. Now, I don't know how Haydn got his hands on it, but he did. And he was blown away by it and asked a German friend to put the words into German. And I just find this, this work fascinating because it starts off with the archangel Raphael talking to the other archangels about the creation of the earth. And it starts off with chaos. And then the archangel says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And I think musically, you can show us how this developed. Well, this was certainly, let's go to the piano. Why don't we do that? Please. But this was certainly and remains one of the greatest musical moments of all time and still heralded as such and still enjoyed as such. But can you imagine the first ears that, that uh, heard this and the first people who actually got a chance to, to feel this music, to touch it, the, the performers themselves. So here's uh, just a very small snippet from, uh, snippet from, the, uh, from the creation. Uh, and it's uh, just as the place where, where Barb described. And it starts like this. I'm gonna speak it instead of sing it if you don't mind. just with a Steinway concert grand piano, but with, uh, with a full orchestra and full chorus yelling out the word light to, to everyone's absolute delight. And it's so fantastic when you think of uh, Haydn's reaction to that performance uh, as it was going on. What was, what was that? Well, he had to leave partway through because he wasn't really well enough to, it's, it's a long piece, <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't well enough to stay for the whole thing. Well, he probably wanted to get to the reception first. <laughs> but the thing I like about that, and the thing that I, it's also indicative of Haydn's music, is the surprise element. Yes. You know, you, you get these lovely melodic passages and then you get bang in right, your face. Yeah, right between the eyes. Right yeah. between the eyes. Well, this apparently, at this particular performance, the crowd went nuts as well too. And uh, they applaud and applaud and applaud, and I think they had to encore it a bunch of times. And of course, Haydn has tears in his eyes as he was listening to this. This whole, essentially, the light that he brought into this world too is just uh, just an amazing. Well, speaking of being brought into the world, 
Can we talk about where this guy's from and what uh, what his early life was like and what his what his beginnings were like? Because it wasn't always he easy for him, was it? No, it wasn't. His father was a wheelwright on a family estate, but he was also a good amateur musician. And when Haydn was very young, he used to sing along with his father, and he used to pretend to play the violin. The father recognized with, with two pieces of wood. Apparently, <laughs> yes. yes, I know players like that. <laughs> No strings attached. <laughs> so his father had the good fortune to recognize there was an ability there. But when he was five years old, can you imagine this? Five years old, he was sent off to live with a cousin who was supposed to teach him music. And very interesting, Haydn later wrote that he got more flogging than food and not much musical instruction. Well, I called himself a street urchin and so on yes. because he was never cleaned. And, yeah, but when great. he was eight, his voice was heard and he was accepted into the choristers at St. Stephen's, which apparently... This is in Vienna. In Vienna. Vienna. You only got paid pennies. And so he used to even then go out on the street and sing for extra money so he could have extra food. And an interesting little fact, he was joined there by his brother, Michael, who for a long time was considered the more successful of the two. But then his voice changed. Now, I don't know if I should bring this up, but it is true that the people who ran the, the choristers were thinking of having a little operation done on Haydn to keep his voice from changing. But his father found out about it and came and said, absolutely not. This is the life of the castrato. And yes. this was just around the times when this was, people were starting to wake up to the fact that maybe this wasn't the best way to no. So Haydn kind of, also Maria Teresa, apparently at a service, said, who's that boy that's crowing in the middle of the song? <laughs> but he got back at her. I have to just interject this for a minute. He got back at her. This is when the big palace was being built. And Haydn snuck off and climbed up in the scaffolding because he wanted to see what it was like. But she caught him and gave him a ticking off. <laughs> anyway, he realized his time was coming to an end. So I think he decided to get his revenge on some fellow choristers. He cut one boy's pigtail off. <laughs> oh. um, anyway, then he had, to, he had to leave. And the next two years were really difficult for him. Well, so he would be 17 years old, 17, 17, 18 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he's basically just turned out onto the street? He was. And he said he was turned out on the street with three shirts and a ragged coat and nothing else. Right. And so he, he took on students. He found a garret. Um, it really interesting. Vienna had all these people that lived there, but they only had so many houses. So you had different levels. And he was in a garret. But interestingly enough, below him lived the poet of the Habsburgs. And below him lived one of the Esterhazy princesses. Well, nothing like treating our artists well. <laughs> <laughs> but through this poet, he made great connections. But those two years were really, really difficult. Yeah. I mean, he street performed, he played in bars, he did whatever he could to make money. Well, so how did that turn around? Because this, uh, to, to take a, a person that's that low living in a garret, ending up with that huge celebration where Beethoven would bow to you, well, essentially, how, where was the turning point? How did it He happen? was introduced to a Count Morzen, I believe that's how you would pronounce it, when he was 19. And he was employed by him because he also um, was interested in music. 
there's, there's two things that happened. One was this Count Morzen who hired him to write a symphony. It was his first one, I think. Maybe not. I'm not sure about that, actually. It's hard time. to number them because they're all it, yes. you know, with different titles and so on. But then he was also introduced to um, a man by the name of Nikolai Porpora, who was um, an Italian who taught music, and he became, Haydn became his accompanist. And he said, if I look after your boots, clean your boots, I look after beating your coat to keep all the dust out of it, <laughs> and look after your wigs, will you teach me? And so that's where he was taught composition, because when he was in the choristers, he learned about music, but not necessarily about, about composition. So this was kind of the turning point. And also, Corpora, of course, had influence in the big, big houses. So his first kind of person who commissioned him was Court this count, but then he went bankrupt. However, he recommended Haydn, and this has to be the most serendipitous thing in Haydn's world, because he introduced him to the Esterhazys, and he introduced him to Paul Anton Esterhazy, who loved music, and he hired Haydn as his vice Kapellmeister. Well, let's, that's fascinating. How, um, can you describe the Esterhazy uh, situation, the whole Princeton and and so on because there were several families of those Esterhazys that uh, that that were offered to support Haydn for the rest of his career. There were Paul Anton Esterhazy was very wealthy, um, had this estate called Eisenstadt, um, and he. And this got, was outside of Vienna. It was outside of Vienna, close and he, to the toward Hungary ish. Yes. Yes. Okay. And the reason that he was so well respected was because he had been a general in the Austro-Hungarian War and actually profited from it a lot. But he was only alive for about a year. And then it was taken over by Nicholas, who was called the Magnificent, not because of his intellect or anything else, but because he, of his extravagances. He had things like a diamond-encrusted uniform but he also was an amateur musician and loved music. So he continued the employment of Haydn, but Haydn was event actually a servant. I mean, he Yes, had, what does it mean to be an employed, an employed musician well, in a household like he that? he had to present himself before the prince twice a day in full uniform to receive his orders. And he was responsible for all of the music everything that took place. But well, what, would it, what would that include in, in, that, in a household like that? Okay, he had to write music, he had to perform music. Um, Nicholas had an, an orchestra that was permanently settled, well not permanently settled, but it was at Eisenstadt, of 25 musicians. He had an opera chorus, I believe somewhere between 12 and 18. There were two concert halls, there was a marionette theater. I mean, this music was the center of this universe and Haydn was responsible for it, but he had to sign a contract. Well, it sounds say, a little bit like Disneyland. <laughs> a bit. I mean, really, you're, you're, you're in the middle of Hungary somewhere. It's, it, you know, tucked away in this little, little paradise of, of possibility and musicians and, and all sorts of things. Well, and for the first little while, Haydn had to live in the servants' quarters, but then he was given a house on the edge of the estate. But he also had to do things like he had to settle disputes between musicians. Like he was once called into town because the oboe player got into a bar fight <laughs> and Handel had to go in and settle it. And he it's usually had, the trombonist, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> and he had, 
a um, signed a contract that he said he would display no vulgarity in either eating, dress, or conversation. But so music was okay. To music be was okay. <laughs> but the plus side, Haydn himself said, was that he had at his disposal some of the finest musicians of his day. And so he was able to write music, take it, listen to it, and say, well, you know, that doesn't work, this might work, take it back, rework it, and bring it back to the orchestra. It's an interesting thing because nowadays, where we're so digitally set up, and uh, for example, I compose using a software system called Finale, which will play things back to me. It's not the most musical experience, but it gives you an idea to make sure your transpositions are right and all, all sorts of things that we have. Um, we can do this on a very insular basis now, but you actually needed real people in those days to try things out. You did. And he was also, Haydn was well loved by all the musicians. And there, I have to tell you this story because I love this. There's a symphony called the Farewell Symphony. Now these musicians all lived in Vienna, but they came to Eisenstadt to play. And the prince had kept them rather longer than they felt was necessary. So Haydn wrote this symphony. And what happened in it, that one by one, the musicians blew out the candles on their stands and left the stage until there were only two violins left. <laughs> he got the message, he sent them home. <laughs> well, let's contrast that for a second to Beethoven and his reactions to, to royal people and to, uh, to the aristocracy and how he just would not bend in any way. And, uh, how in that very quick turnaround time that, that Haydn would approach it this way with humor and with humility and, and, and the powers that be would, would understand it. But it. it is also interesting that when his time was up with the Esterhazys, because after Nicholas died, the next Esterhazy had absolutely no interest in music, although they did give Haydn a pension. He said that he felt this sense of freedom um, from his servitude. Well, it's interesting too because he, he himself also had a lot of friendships all over the world, and he he in a way, even though this was a, a very, in one sense, a very luxurious situation to be in, it isolated him from the rest of the cultural world, uh, and from his, a lot of cultural friends and so on. For example, Mozart in Vienna, who was a who was a good friend, and how how to actually connect with that, and so. Maybe there was a, when this uh, turn of uh, power happened in the Esterhazy household, there was a chance for Haydn to actually explore internationally as well too. There was, he went to London and he was hailed like a rock star in London. Um, he went to parties and he, he got, got so upset, he said, I can't compose in this environment. So <laughs> he took himself off to the country, but he also had time, it must be said, to have an affair with um, a very, what he referred to as a very handsome widow who was in her 60s, which gives me hope. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just back up and talk about that for a second, because I think earlier, the first patron, when he first got his first patron, did he not decide that he could marry at that point? He did, but he wasn't supposed to. The, the deal with Count Morzan was he wasn't allowed to marry, but he did, disastrously, I might add. He... <laughs> He had fallen in love with one of his pupils, but her parents had decided that she was going to become a nun. She had no choice in the matter. But the father said to Haydn, eh, you know, I got this other daughter, Mariana, why don't you marry her? Turns out it was a big mistake because 
She was a shrew, and unlike Shakespeare, <laughs> she couldn't be tamed. <laughs> Haydn once said of her that she could have cared less whether her husband was a cobbler or a musician or an artist. She used to cut up his manuscripts to roll her hair or line her pastry trays, depending <laughs> on who you talk to. And it really interesting, when he was in London, his wife died and he returned to Vienna. He settled in a house outside the city that she had originally bought, she told him, hopefully for her widowhood. <laughs> but they had 40 years of marriage and he supported her through all those 40 years. Well, they figured it out somehow or other. They did, but he, he had a pile. She wrote to him frequently, and a friend visiting said, how come those letters are unopened? And he said, well, I don't want to know what's in them, and she doesn't open mine. <laughs> but at least we communicate. Yes. <laughs> in our own way. Through the bank transfers, right. apparently. Right, exactly. Well, let's go back to London and <clears throat> talk a little bit more. London. Uh, Haydn had two visits to, to London. Uh, and of course, he, as you say, he arrived on the scene as a star. Uh, people were playing his music. He was very, very popular already, and uh, and he continued to compose for for London. He did, and one of my favorite things is the surprise symphony, because, and I know you're going to give us a little bit of this, <laughs> but um, he had this lovely, soft passage, and then just bang, this fortissimo chord from the orchestra. Now, some people said it was to wake up audience members, but Haydn said, no, 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 I just wanted people to have a surprise. Surprise, let's see if we can find that surprise. It would wake you up, definitely. Can, uh, well, I'd like to talk, too, about um, his string quartets because the Emperor's string quartet, which I think is being played this summer, is it? Yes, one of the... Okay. Yes, yeah. His inspiration from that, which I found absolutely astounding, is the fact that he loved God Save the King. He thought that the English national anthem was this stirring, wonderful piece, and he thought, I want to write something similar. So, of course, one of the sections of the Emperor Quartet eventually became the Austrian National Anthem and then eventually became the German National Anthem um, and is in our hymn books, actually. So, That's yes. yeah, absolutely amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit more about his music. Uh, it, uh, it's astounding, the output oh. of this composer. Just to, here's a brief list of compositions that he wrote, and I would like you to think about this in context of Beethoven's nine symphonies, and Brahms' four symphonies, mm -hmm. and two piano concertos, and, uh, and, and others. Haydn wrote 104 symphonies, 68 string quartets, 45 piano trios, <coughs> 45 piano sonatas, 15 oratorios, 15 operas, 10 marionette operas and musical comedies, and he wrote concertos, he wrote incidental music, he wrote original songs, and he wrote 447 folk song arrangements. He has <clears throat> 32 pieces for mechanical clock, <laughs> 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 uh, 
And he has something that I don't think anyone else has in their catalog. He has 126 baritone trios. What's a baritone trio? It was some kind of an instrument. I'm not sure exactly what, but I know it's the, the reason he has those is because that's the instrument that Prince Nicholas played. And so he was commissioned by Nicholas so to, he was commissioned or by Nicholas. maybe commanded by Nicholas to compose. Probably the latter. I think it's like an arpeggione. I think it's a cello-ish. I think and so. It has, but many, many more strings and quite a complexity to it. And uh, I'm not sure I know any baritone players. Well, apparently a terrible sound. Oh, right. Or maybe that was just the way Nicholas played it. But <laughs> nonetheless, there's 126 baritone trios. But you know what's fascinating <laughs> is when you were talking about Mozart being in Vienna at the same time, Mozart was very influenced by Haydn's uh, Russian string quartets, which we can talk about in a minute. And Haydn was very influenced by Mozart's symphonies. And it's interesting that his symphonies got better as he got older. Um, and they were best friends, which when you think of it, is like he was, Haydn was 49 when he met Mozart, who was 25. But Mozart had this tremendous amount of respect for Haydn and said that he was the only composer that he felt he could learn something from and that he touched his soul. I, I just found that fascinating. It is amazing. I think that the incredible thing about Haydn is you forget what, where he came from and what he led to. <clears throat> you may not be able to, well, you might be able to whistle a few Haydn tunes because there's a zillion of them. But it's, it's uh, the impact that this composer had on Western music is absolutely phenomenal. Well, huge, absolutely huge. And it'd be fun to talk about some of these things. Um, for example, uh, the, uh, the form that he, he essentially through, when you write something 104 times, you do solidify it in actual yes. form. And I, you know, I was talking to my good friend, John Burge, the composer, and I said, John, how can some composers write 104 symphonies and some struggle to write one? And he said, well, nowadays, nowadays you have to continually reset your rules every time you sit down to, to create a piece of music. Whereas in Haydn's time, he found a, he found a form that you slip things into and you just, you just continued to follow the form. But it has to be with inventiveness and with sparkling. But he expanded the form, too. And expanded the form. Because, for example, in string quartets, he really modernized them. And also in his last symphonies, he really came close to what our modern orchestra is, which was the first thing, uh, first time that happened. But for example, in his early string quartets, he followed the form that was set out before him. So that was the, the first violin carried the melody and the rest were alone for the ride. When he went to the next ones, which I think are called the sun uh, quartets, he tried to make all of the instruments more or less equal. But when he went to the third one, the third set, like the Russian ones, he really expanded the melodies, he expanded the variations, he did a lot of interesting things. These were written, uh, these were commissioned by um, a count, who, by the way, had exclusive rights to them for two years. Mm. But they were written, <coughs> excuse me, in praise of the man who would eventually become Tsar Paul II. And they're kind of fun because he did very unexpected things. Like one of them is called the joke. 
and I'm going to leave it to you to explain why. I'm going to save the joke for a little bit later. Are you? If you okay. don't mind. So you have to stay tuned for the joke because I okay. think it's going to be so so much fun. Because well, but I got something else that's just as funny as well too, which would, right which would be really fun to, to talk about. Because I think one of the things, if you think about uh, uh, Haydn coming out of the music of C.P.E. Bach, yes, essentially the son of son of Johann Sebastian, and leading into the music of Mozart and, and Beethoven, it, that's kind of how he fits into the whole the whole thing. One of the big things that I, for me, that he really solidified was a concept of phrase, how a phrase actually works and what's going on with a phrase. And so to demonstrate this, I, uh, I wanted to play a little bit of J.S. Bach, just a little bit uh, by sure. comparison. And this is, the, uh, this is the E major prelude from book one. forward and forward and forward. And now by contrast, here's one of the sonatas of Haydn uh, from um, his Hoboken uh, 16, number 49. Uh, and this is the sonata in E flat. And it opens like this. Just amazing. Just a little sparkle of wit that comes sailing out of this. Now this one is called uh, the Have Another Beer. Uh, sonata and these are, and it's very interesting that a lot of a uh, lot of Haydn's uh, uh, works are nicknamed after certain things but this is because of this this is have another beer <laughs> and what's so interesting about this is that he says have another beer have another beer <laughs> so he answers himself with this uh, concept of question and answer which is a which is at the core of the Haydn phrase which is really really interesting uh, and then there's an answer to those two beers, which goes, which is really quite magnificent. So when you put all that together, oh, I should say as well too, there's also the little, the, the modest belch that goes with it, <laughs> which is in the left hand and the belch goes. <laughs> I love so it. together we go. And also, not only have another beer, have another beer, beer. oh, isn't life great? But also, the, the extended uh, thing of that, isn't life great, isn't life great, which happens at the end of the whole thing. So these questions upon answers and question finds that happen all the way through, really, really fun. One of the interesting things when you're listing his uh, compositions, after he met Mozart, he said, I didn't write hardly any more operas because I realized I wasn't great at that genre. But his first one was called The Limping Devil. <laughs> and way back when, when he was busking on the street, he was outside this house of a comic actor called Kurtz. And this man heard this music and came running downstairs and said, who composed that? And Haydn said, well, I did. And he said, well, you must write me an opera. Come upstairs. So he brought Haydn upstairs, sat him down at the clavier, and said, now, 
I'm going to show demonstrate swimming. So he got on his belly on a chair and did this swimming motion. And he said to Haydn, now write music that would go with that. And apparently Haydn did. But they came up with this thing called the Limping Devil, which had two performances apparently in Vienna, but was then lost. Well, apparently there was uh, some material in there that was oh, a considered, little inappropriate. It was considered offensive. <laughs> and you have to remember the, the rules of behavior and were very stringent at that time. So, so isn't they crossed it, a line. Isn't it remarkable <clears throat> to think that the, this, uh, this sense of humor which can be deemed inappropriate by whoever happens to be listening to it or not understanding it, as the case may be, uh, how a composer could actually find a way to maintain his sense of humor and still make such powerful, important works. I have a beautiful quote here that I wanted to share. This is from Haydn. I must have something to do. Usually musical ideas are pursuing me to the point of torture. I cannot escape them. They stand like walls before me. If it's an allegro that pursues me, my pulse keeps beating faster and I can get no sleep. If it's an adagio, then I notice my pulse beating slowly. My imagination plays on me as if I were a clavier or keyboard. Haydn smiled, the blood rushed to his face and he said, I am really just a living clavier. <laughs> so it's really wonderful that these, these musical things would chase him around and uh, uh, and so, so fertile imagination. And in fact, I think his body wore out before his mind did. Is that right? I think so. And as I say, I think one of the wonderful things is that some of his best works came when he was past 65. Tell me about his final years uh, around the time of this uh, He of had this a big lot of illnesses. And he was really, there were days when he was not able to get out at all. Um, and then, of course, you realize at this time there was a lot of political upheaval. And the French began to shell Vienna, which was a real shock to Haydn. We're in 1808-ish? Yes, okay. but one of Haydn's great admirers was Napoleon. And so he gave instructions that his some of his guards were to go and guard Haydn's house. And was it true that one of the guards actually sang to him an aria from the creation? I don't know that, yeah, but it would be lovely. Yeah, it would be really quite quite flattering to have your, your honor guard to actually sing sing one of your pieces back to you, depending on how you sang, of course. Anyway, it was a fantastic life, and uh, when, uh, can we deal a little bit with his death? Uh, one of the things that stopped me in my tracks when I was reading this was that uh, when Haydn died, uh, he was buried and then exhumed and moved to, to another place. He was going to be moved to Eisenstadt and then that's when they discovered that his head was missing. And I was just going to say, but his head followed a different route. It can, did. Can we talk about that? Just it's, a, it's, just a, it's a very odd detail, it's a, but it's really wonderful. It's a extreme I think no one would have laughed more than he would have. <laughs> probably. Phrenology, as you know, is the study of bumps on the head. And there was a... a some man who knew Haydn and wanted to study the bumps on Haydn's head. So he <laughs> persuaded a grave digger when Haydn was buried to go and dig up the grave and cut off the head. And the head was brought to him. Well, he couldn't exactly hide, I guess, what had been done. So the police were sent to his house. Well, his wife took the, the head and buried it in the straw in her bed 
and then told these policemen that she was so sick so that they wouldn't come anywhere near her. So she hid the head she, in, his, in her bed. She hid the head in her bed. Oh my. And actually the head and the body were not reunited until 1954. Oh. And so now there are two heads in his crypt. <laughs> And I guess two heads are better than one, I right? Guess so. <laughs> well, what a delightful, uh, delightful time this has been, Barb, chatting with you about Haydn. And I so look forward to doing more podcasts with you. We're going to have a great time. Uh, I think the world needs uh, needs to stay connected uh, these days. And what a what better way to do it than just by by thrilling to our artists and our art and uh, and our connection that we have through that. So, Barb, thank you so much for being our guest today. If anyone has anything they'd like to contribute to this conversation or continue it, please write to us at West Bend uh, and use, uh, use westben at westben.ca and we'll, uh, we'll uh, entertain your, your comments and questions and hopefully uh, get a response or maybe talk about it the next time we get together. As Bart mentioned during the podcast, we are looking forward to presenting the New Orford String Quartet, which will be playing Haydn this, uh, this coming summer. Uh, God willing, and uh, so we're, we're really looking forward to that. But anyway, thank you so much for being our guest, Barb. Before we close, can I just read to you what, I think both you and I have a favorite musicologist, and that would be Jan Swafford. Absolutely. And this is what he says about Haydn. The joys of Haydn at his best are the surprising turns, the delight of someone we thought was predictable, suddenly kicking up his heels. With Haydn, you must listen. Listen for the humble little theme to flower into luxurious variations. Listen for the phony endings and other pranks. Listen through the expected for the pleasure of the unexpected. And I think nothing portrays that more than the joke. Originally for string quartet, here it is on piano. so much for listening to music for a while. My name is Samantha and I will be the editor of this podcast series. Before you go, I just wanted to say a big thank you to our season sponsor Finley and Associates for supporting all that we do at West Bend, including this creation of a podcast. I would also like to direct you to our website www.westbend.ca for more online content, including musical moments and West Bend kids as a part of our Sunshine Ahead campaign. This podcast is created with Anchor and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and all other places you might find a podcast. Please subscribe and recommend it to your friends and family to help the West Bend family grow. Thanks for listening.